Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. And this is our second edition of our brand new advice episodes, which I am so excited about. On the last Monday of every single month, I'm going to be joined by very special guests, and we're going to answer all of your questions. So either send those in to ask at lizmoody.com, or I'll also be taking questions on Instagram a week or so before the last Monday of every single month. I have not one, but two very special guests this week. I'm very excited about both of them. We were actually going to record this in person, but I knew this was going to happen. We were having too much fun doing stuff that we didn't get to record anything. So now we're actually doing this virtually, even though we were all together just a short while ago. Why don't we start with Justine? Would you like to say hello and say who you are and a little bit about yourself? Hey, everybody. I'm Justine. I go by Justine Snacks on Instagram. I think some of you might know me, some of you might not, but I'm definitely in the cooking food world. I'm very excited to be on a chatty podcast. (laughs) She is very famous. You're selling yourself short. How many followers do you have on TikTok now? I have 1.7 million, but I keep thinking it's 1.8, which is really just bad for my mental health, but I'm working on it. Do you ever think about that in terms of like a city? Like, are you ever like, that has to be more people than live in Nashville or something? Well, that just made me like way more. It's weird, like how perceived I am, if that makes sense. No, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? (laughs) It's more just like, I just can't believe that I've made an impression on that many people. Yeah, it's wild. Like, I think sometimes thinking of the amount of people watching you online in terms of like, oh, that's. It's like a town. It's like a real city. It would have its own public transportation system, probably, which is wild. I've never thought about it that way, but that's going to ruin me for a bit. <laughs> okay, sorry. Sorry, sorry. And then my second guest is the lovely Karina. Karina, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, I'm Karina. You might also know me as Kill Me Maybe on Instagram. I don't have 1.7 million followers on TikTok. I have like 50,000. <laughs> No, but I am a writer, a journalist, and like a food blogger, recipe developer. You're one of the OGs. I was reaching out to you to feature you in articles years, I mean, obviously years before I was an influencer, back when I was working in full-time editorial, and you were already a professional influencer at that point, which is crazy. Yeah, it goes way back. It's kind of wild. I was just thinking about how it's almost the 10-year anniversary of my blog. That is insane. Feels weird. (laughs) And you guys were both in Bend last week. What was your favorite part of visiting me and Zach in Bend? (laughs) I personally loved when we all floated down the river twice and just like had a nice time talking, drinking a little bit, (laughs) getting sunburnt. Actually, that was not my favorite part, but just feeling truly relaxed and also doing that with good company. And like, yeah, that is just unbeatable. Okay. Guys, Liz has a game that she makes everybody play when they visit her called (laughs) Salad Bowl. (laughs) I love Salad Bowl. I've heard of the game before, but not in the term of Salad Bowl. And it is now my favorite thing to do slash play. And that I know that was only like an hour of the trip where we were indoors, even though Bend is known for nature. But I really enjoyed it. (laughs) It's so fun. Okay, so for anybody who hasn't played salad bowl. It's also called fish bowl. I think it has a bunch of names, but basically it changes every single time you play it and it changes with the people you play it with. But even if you play it with the same people, it changes then. And 
you don't need anything to play it. Like you don't need to buy anything. You just need a big bowl or a hat and some paper and everybody writes down whatever they want on the paper. It can be like a celebrity. I like to get really specific because I'm weird. So I'll be like the first person who invented the YMCA, like dreaming up the dance. But you can also just say like a bicycle or the, who's that guy in Scotland? Like the abominable, you know what I mean? Abominable snowman? Yeah, that's not... Who's the Scotland one? The Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can say anything like that. So everybody does like four things. You put it in a hat. And then the first round, you can say whatever you want other than what's on the card. The second round, you put everything back in the hat. So it's the exact same things. And you act it out, which is always the funniest round. I think at one point was Justine being... It was a cobbler in a, a tornado. tornado. Yes. I have not let that image leave my mind. I just see Justine on all fours and like <laughs> twirling around and us having no idea what she's doing. Literally but, like, dying laughing. No idea what she was doing. And then the last round, you can only say one word, but you can say it as many times as possible. So you end up in the situation where a person is like, cookie, cookie. Okay. And like, and you can do intonations. There's one I needed, like, I did like a British accent for it, I think. And then somebody got it. I forget what that was, but it's the best game in the world. It's so much fun. You can Google Salad Bowl if you want all the rules. I love it. Okay. Let's get in to some advice questions. I got so many. I tried to narrow it down, but let's see how many we can get to. First up, I would love your advice on navigating changing or potentially dissolving friendships or friendships that you might have outgrown. That's a tough one. Well, I'd be curious about like, are you guys friends with people from different phases of your life? Yes, but I also would say there are some cases where it's very much a no, and I'm okay with that. How can you tell when it's a no? Sometimes you keep a friendship around because you've known them for a long time or because you have history or you have mutual friends and you realize that the friendship doesn't actually make you feel good and you grow and you change as you get older and you hope that your friends grow and change with you. And I think at least in my friendships, I try to bring my friends along with me. I talk about what I'm going through. I talk about their life. And if you aren't able to achieve that and your friendship isn't making you feel good, it's fraught, the person isn't treating you well or they're not serving you and you try to work through it with them and it's not getting any better, you don't have to stick through it just because you've known them for a long time. I don't think you should be heartless and cruel and cut them off like out of nowhere without notice. But I think that if you start to drift apart and it's not something that fits anymore, it can be very sad. And in most cases for me, it was sad to lose a friendship, but I feel a lot healthier knowing that the people around me treat me well, are there for me, I have fun with, and just like suit me in my present life. I think that's so true. We did a friendship episode of the podcast and the friendship coach on the episode said that you also don't need a friend to be every single thing to you. So you can kind of downgrade and upgrade friends, if you will. So you don't need to be like, oh, this friendship is over. I'm done with it. But maybe this isn't somebody I'm going to invest a lot of my time and energy to. Or somebody can just be your friend you go to fitness classes with, and that's totally okay. And I think sometimes we feel this pressure like, oh, if they're going to be my fitness class friend, they also need to be the friend I have over for cocktails and the friend I tell all my hopes and dreams to and the friend who supports me in my career. And actually, those can be 
really different people who fill really different roles in your life. So I think sometimes maybe it's not a matter of eliminating a friend, but figuring out what role they might play in your life or even re-identifying, refiguring what role they might play in your life. But then my question is kind of similar to this person's question. And it kind of plays off what you two said. Like there are times where you can truly identify when a friendship has really run its course. Like essentially when a friendship turns from a faucet into a drain is like the analogy I like to use. But unlike romantic relationships where you can just say, hey, this isn't working out for me. I feel like friendships, there's so much more nuance or there's so much more like tact and care that has to go into having that kind of conversation and also a lot more pressure to salvage it. And I don't know, have you guys ever been in that situation? Like, do these things just naturally fade out or do you actually like need to have like a final conversation or like a breaking point there? I don't think you need a final conversation. I don't think you need closure. I think if one party is asking to have a conversation, then out of respect, I think it's worth having. But I personally think you can just do the things you want to do with that friend. And there doesn't need to be a conversation either about a downgrade. Like we used to be besties and now you're my yoga class friend. Like you don't need to say that and probably should not say that. But I also don't think even if you're creating more distance or space that necessarily needs to be said with the caveat of if there is an issue at the root of that, I think that should be said. The friendship coach in the friendship episode said this. So if people want more on friendship, I highly recommend that episode. She was very wise. But she said that we often let go of friendships because we're afraid of this small moment of confrontation and that discomfort of having a conversation and moving through that moment. It's like, what's the worst that can happen? The conversation will make you not friends anymore. And if that's already going to happen anyway, then you have literally nothing to lose by having that conversation. So I would say no conversations needs to be had if you've just grown apart. But if there is a issue at its core, if there's something you need to talk about, it's always better to have that conversation versus just let it drift away because of that thing. I totally agree. And I think that I can think of cases where both were true, where you just drift apart a little and where I've had conversations. Another thing to add to that is that friendships can ebb and flow. And just because you're not close now or not hanging out as much doesn't mean that's how it's going to be forever. Like I've had plenty of instances where I've reconnected with people in life when we've both grown up a little or moved to the same city or anything like that. I don't think anything is ever permanent. Like if you're not close with someone, that doesn't mean you're never going to be close to them again. You might just be in an off season of your life. I love that. Yeah. And to your point, when you were talking about the conversation thing, it made me think of a situation I had with like one of my best friends from college. We were super close and we kind of lost touch when I moved. I went to school in New York and I moved back to LA where I'm from. And we weren't not friends. We just didn't really stay in touch very well because we weren't talking as frequently, like the friendship kind of faded a little bit. And then she ended up moving back here and I didn't make a huge effort in hanging out with her. And she picked up on it and she confronted me about it. And we ended up having a conversation that completely changed our friendship because I was able to express some of my frustrations that I had with her and she expressed hers with me. And I think a lot of stuff I had held inside for years, she had no idea I was feeling that way. She was taking my pulling back. Like she was so confused by it and thought I was being a bad friend and thought I was being rude. And it was because I didn't have the maturity to say, here's what's frustrating me in our friendship. And once we put it all out on the table, she was like, yeah, I totally agree. That was 
not great. I wish you would have told me earlier. And I was like, I wish I did too. And now we have a very healthy, good relationship and are good friends again. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. I am so excited to introduce you to today's podcast guest. You're definitely familiar with them if you follow me on Instagram because I've talked about them like a million times. I basically need to have my nails look cute all the time since I'm shooting so many videos with my hands in them. I also feel like having my nails be bright and happy and colorful is such a tiny, easy way to boost my mood. And there's actually a lot of science around how seeing beautiful colors makes us happier, so why not harness that on our hands, which we see all day long? That's where Olive and June comes in. I've been using Olive and June's Manny system to give myself at-home manicures for the past two years, and I'm honestly still shocked every single time at how good it looks, since I used to do my nails at home before Olive and June, and it truly looked like a five-year-old had painted them. There are a few secrets to Olive and June's Manny system, which comes with literally everything you need to give yourself a perfect manicure. First, it is so much more affordable than going out and getting a manicure. We're talking like $2 a Manny versus $35 for the same overall results. Also, it comes with the best nail clippers that I have ever used. They're really grippy so they don't slip, and they're straight across so you can do all types of nail shapes, not just oval. And then their cuticle serum is amazing. They actually don't think it's ideal to trim cuticles, and the serum makes it so you don't have to. And then there's something called the poppy, which you pop on the top of the nail polish, and it makes it so much easier to paint with your non-dominant hand. It's a genius little tool. It's wide and flat, so it's so much easier to grip than the tiny little nail polish cap. It stabilizes your hand, and it aligns the brush the right way on your nail so you get a perfect even stroke every single time. And then the polishes themselves are phenomenal. First of all, they literally look like gels. They are so shiny and they don't chip and they last for ages. I'm looking at my nails right now and I painted them like a week ago today, maybe even a little bit longer, and they look like I could have gotten a manicure this morning. They also have the cutest colors. I'm loving like bright, happy colors for spring, but I also think doing sort of like a neutral ombre is such a vibe and they have the perfect colors for both of those looks and so many more. I've honestly never been able to dream up a color in my head that I haven't been able to find on their website. And then the top coat makes everything look so polished and shiny and perfect. And here's a fun secret. Apply a new coat of the top coat every few days. It'll reinvigorate your mani and make it look absolutely perfect even longer. And of course, Olive and June's polishes are always seven free, meaning they're completely free of the seven toxic chemicals most commonly found in nail polish formulas. I'm wearing Energize on my nails right now, which is the prettiest light green, and I'm also loving Eura 10, which is like an orange sherbet color, and BP, which is the prettiest pale blue. I also think that the Malibu Sunset Set is so chic. Whenever I wear it, I get a zillion compliments. If you want an even more instant mani, Olive and June just launched their press-ons, which are not only so cutely designed, but actually stay put, are made from recycled materials, and don't damage your nails. If you would like to try Olive and June for yourself and have manis that last over a week, visit oliveandjune.com slash healthier20 for 20% off your first mani system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash H-E-A-L-T-H-I-E-R two zero for 20% off your first mani system. And then send me pics on Insta of your gorgeous nails. I am so excited to see them. Now, let's get back to the episode. I'm so afraid of confrontation, and I have had two friendships recently where I've had to 
have a confrontation moment and the feeling you get after is almost addictive. It feels like so built up in your mind and so hard. And then you have the conversation and you're like, oh my gosh, that's what honesty and expressing our feelings, that's where that can get us. It's wild. Then it opens the door for in the future that you can talk things through. So next time something comes up, you don't ball it up. And then your relationship improves from there because you've already like opened up Pandora's box. 100%. I think you'll both probably have strong thoughts on this one. What is your best advice for getting out of a cooking rut? I've recently become obsessed, 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 obsessed with buying cookbooks, not because I want to cook every recipe in them, but strictly for the aesthetic of the book and like going to a bookstore and flipping through. And if I find one thing, or if I find that I just generally like the style of the food, that cookbook becomes mine. I take it home with me. And then how to get out of a rut is I usually like the beginning sections of cookbooks. That's where cooks usually put like staple sauces, staple recipes. So I just try out something that's really appealing and see how I can incorporate it into my existing staples. So for example, I picked up this Italian salsa verde recipe from Joshua McFadden's second book, Grains for Every Season. And what that essentially was, was chopped up parsley, minced garlic, diced up shallot, capers, olive oil, and lemon juice mixed together into like this very relishy, like kind of chunky salsa. And I immediately started riffing on it in every foreseeable way. And it completely changed how I cooked for at least a month. I became hyper fixated on turning everything into a salsa verde. And that was all just because I picked up a cookbook that I liked. And it helped me like really get out of a rut. But that's my best advice is go to a cookbook section of a bookstore, find something that you like that will look good on your coffee table and like pick it up. And you can also do that at a library. Tons of people always message me on Instagram and tell me that they got my book at the library. And sometimes people will be like a little apologetic. They'll be like, do you mind that I got it at the library? And I'm like, no, I love that you got it at the library. I also think I always say that cookbooks are promises of people that we can be. And I think that's one of the reasons they're so appealing is the idea that you flip through a cookbook and you're like, I could be this Tuscan villa person eating pasta. It just I think that they really hold a promise beyond just the food that you're eating. And I think there's something really beautiful about that moment you take home a new cookbook and you're like, I could turn into that person, you know? Oh yeah. They totally sell a lifestyle. And also if you're like too lazy to go to the library, I get all of my Ina Garten cookbooks on the Libby app. And then you could read them on Kindle because like I know that I want to be Ina Garden. I know that's the lifestyle I'm buying there. So the hers I can just read digitally. So that's another hot tip. And you feel like specifically going for like a sauce or a condiment type thing versus just flipping through and finding any recipe that appeals to you is a secret to getting out of a cooking rut because then you can modify that condiment type thing for a bunch of different dishes. Well, my big thing is when using a cookbook, I never want somebody to like think, oh, I need to go out and buy all of these ingredients to make this recipe. I think it's so much easier to take a simpler recipe and then adapt it to how you normally like eating. Like if your family really, really likes like rice and beans based dinners, then it's a lot easier to get out of a cooking rut by taking one thing and adding it in that's unique instead of like going to the store and completely overhauling your entire pantry. And then you have like half a can of tomato paste. And like, what are you going to do with that? You know, sometimes I get in a cooking rut when I'm thinking too hard. 
Like I'm just like, what can I make that's different? What can I make that's new? And then I just get stumped because I'm staring at all the same things in my fridge. So this might sound kind of counterintuitive, but I like to go just pick out random ingredients that I haven't bought in a while and then just force myself to start cooking with them. And usually I feel like that snaps me out of it a bit because I get out of my head and I'm like, I'm just going to cook this and just see what happens. No pressure. And usually it's good. What type of ingredients are we talking about? Like even just vegetables. Like I'll go, I don't know if I haven't bought carrots in a while or something, I'll buy carrots or I'll browse the shelves and look for something that I haven't used in quite some time, but with no plan. And I know that stresses some people out. So it might be that bad advice for some people. But to me, that kind of like tricks my brain into being a little more creative because I'm forced to think differently than I normally do when I have the same stuff at home. I love that. How do you feel about going for like an ingredient that you've never used before, like a gochujang maybe or like something like that? Is that too far? No, I think that's just right. Although I feel like that can also be intimidating, although that goes with my tip, which is to utilize Google. I think Google is such an incredible like it feels stupid to say like Google's a really powerful tool <laughs> because Google. obviously we all know that, but it's such a powerful tool and I don't think most people are even utilizing it nearly as much as they could be. So my tip for a cooking rut would be to go to your fridge, see what you already have in there. So let's say you have a bag of spinach or something like that and literally Google like recipes with spinach and go through the list because you'll get literally millions of recipes and see one that is inspiring and different, but that's jumping off of an ingredient that you already know that you already love and that you already have in your fridge. It's a really great way to get rid of any vegetables that you have that are starting to go bad. But there's so many ways to utilize ingredients that we already know and that we already love. So I think getting that little jump start is really nice. But then to Justine's point, I think if you find an ingredient that is maybe a little bit more out there and inspiring instead of coming home and putting that in your pantry or your fridge and just letting it sit forever. Again, literally Google, like, what's a recipe that I can make with this ingredient and start incorporating it into your cooking, even if it feels a little bit intimidating so that the thing doesn't just die in the back of your cupboard. Yeah. And you can combine, I feel like, as kind of the same tip. But like, if you have spinach and you also have, I don't know, something else that seems unrelated, like peanut butter or whatever. But you could look that up. Type yeah, yeah. In spinach, you get peanut like a peanut and stew or something. Exactly. Yeah. Or like a stir fry type vibe. You'll be surprised. And I feel like sometimes those are the best meals because they're unexpected. Yeah. It's like the fashion advice from the fashion podcast. You take two style words that are unrelated, but then you put them together and then you don't look costumey. So it's like you take these two foods that are unrelated and you put them together and then you have like a really exciting, interesting dish. Exactly. And also shop from your own closet, like shop from your own pantry. Slash yes. Pantry. Yes. It's all tied together. I love that. Okay. I feel like you guys are both going to have feelings on this one, given what I know about your personal backgrounds. Advice on dealing with a mother and family continuing to push religion on you as an adult. I grew up in a very, very religious family with my mother being the more religious person on that side of my family and being very enthusiastic about pushing it on us kids. Like it was no real option. Like I went to Christian school. I went to Christian high school. I left for college. I went to a really liberal college, but I left coming from this like entirely Christian bubble, arriving at a school with people with different thoughts and ideas and opinions was like completely 
culture shock to me. And a huge part of me leaving my religion was because I was just learning more and more and more and seeing so many different perspectives. But going home was hard because there was always that like religious overtone of like, let's pray on it or like God will find this way, like very much like part of our life in a non-negotiable way. I have had like a falling out with my family, more or less my mother, not because of religion at all, just because of personal differences. But leading up to that, we did have tense moments over religion that I wish I could have come or like combated with a one-on-one conversation. But since it was so assumed and honestly forced on me by my family, it was kind of something that I just had to shy away from in the moment and just be resolute in my beliefs as an adult living my own life in my own, you know, city that I've established. And then when I was home, kind of respecting the beliefs of the household but knowing that they weren't my beliefs. And that was a really hard thing to detach because it can be really uncomfortable, especially when I really disagree. And I still don't know how I would fully navigate that confrontation because it is so personal. I found it's like a very rooted thing that families take very seriously, especially a family like mine. Fundamentally, though, it is a boundary issue, isn't it? It's a boundary and a differentiation issue. And it's a boundary and differentiation issue that's so personal and so fraught, but fundamentally that's what it is. And I feel like a huge part of the experience of becoming an adult is saying, this is your life to your parents and this is my life. And they're not going to be the same thing because we're not the same person. And religion is one aspect where that can come through, but there's so many places it comes through. It comes through with commenting on bodies. It comes through with telling you where you should live. It comes through with telling you how you should parent. And I think almost the more that we can work to flex our boundary-making muscle with our family members, with our friends, with anybody we need to really draw those boundaries with, the stronger those muscles will get and the more clear and comfortable we'll get in what we need and what we want and the lines that we need to draw. No, absolutely. And I actually think my boundary setting had to take like place as low contact, no contact, because there were so many other issues surrounding it. But if you do have the ability and the capacity to set the boundary of like, maybe we don't even discuss religion, or maybe just like, this is my belief, and I hope you respect my beliefs in the same way that I respect yours would be a much more productive way of going about it than the way that like I unfortunately had to go about it. Yeah, I agree. As somebody who is raised religiously, I'm curious, would you have a response to people who are like, I can't just respect your belief because I'm awake at night thinking you're going to go to hell? I understand from being raised in the religion that you are also, and this is completely respectful to everybody who does believe in God, who does have a religion, like obviously we respect all beliefs here. Well, I'm speaking for myself. I respect oh, no, I your think beliefs. we all do. Yes. We all do. <laughs> yeah. But okay, good. Good, good. Now we've got that sorted. <laughs> but I definitely remember that us being told like it was our mission, our duty to evangelize. It didn't really come from my friends, but it did come from my family. I understood and I empathized with that perspective. It definitely never makes you feel good to be told you're going to hell. I wish people were taught a different way to go about it other than that, like, I'm so deeply concerned that you're going to die and burn 
perspective, I think there's a more productive way for people to express concern. But I also just had to kind of empathize with where they're coming from and then stand firm and like, that's uncomfortable, but these are my beliefs and communicate that. My husband, Grant, grew up similar to Justine, where he grew up in a very religious house or not very religious house. He grew up in a community where everyone was Christian. And we both come from very different backgrounds. I grew up outside of LA, culturally Jewish, but very lax. I had a bat mitzvah and everything. But most people around me were not religious. I don't think I had one friend who was a religious Christian. So I knew very little about that world. And I had a lot of thoughts and feelings at a young age when I had my own falling out religion about religion as a whole. And now that I'm married and I've had a lot of conversations with Grant about these things, he has really brought a whole layer of empathy to the table for me because I just didn't understand what it was like to grow up in a community like that where everyone has the same belief. Because I was always kind of a little on the outside because I was Jewish. So it's just a little bit different. But he's really helped me understand where people are coming from. And to Justine and yours point about what do you do if someone thinks you're going to hell? I didn't even know that was a thing that people thought. Like they would be concerned for you. And so for me to hear that kind of like it just changes a little bit how I view other people and their desire to change your religion or convert you because they do think that they're doing something for you. And it helped dissipate some of that anger that I had towards these impositions. And the more I learned about what his life was like and what he learned growing up and what the Bible says and all of these things, it just helped me get into someone else's shoes. And although I do think there's a lot of things that are wrong, like when people had stances against women or anti-gay marriage and that kind of thing. Like to me, it's always just unacceptable. But I think understanding a little can help you figure out tactics to address those things rather than just shouting out with anger, especially when it's a family member. It's like, how can I get into their head to appeal to their mindset rather than just like being emotional and yelling at each other? Knowing more about someone's background helps me tame some of those emotional, angry feelings and helps me to think a little bit more rationally and try to come to an understanding. And I think it's important to acknowledge that you might never agree about something to acknowledge that you're not trying to persuade somebody of anything. All you're trying to do is draw that line of this is my life and this is your life. And that boundary, I feel like I'm overusing the word boundary, but that boundary exists. So I think that sometimes, like you said, we can go in with anger and we can go in trying to prove to somebody that they're wrong in what they believe and what they think. And that literally never works. I would say have respect, have empathy, be firm in your boundaries and know that boundaries are a muscle that the more that you work, the stronger that muscle will get and the easier it will get to draw those boundaries. And then is there anything else like kind of succinct to sum it up that you guys would add? No, I feel like that's a great summary. Yeah, I think the idea that it's a boundary is a good one. And knowing your boundaries and also just trying to give as much respect as you can. And if you don't get it back, then you set a stronger boundary. That's another boundary unto itself, literally, is that I can control what I say, my behavior, but I can't control the other person's behavior. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in like, well, they're not showing me the respect that I deserve. And it's like, well, that's not within my control. What's within my control is the respect that I show them. And so I think really focusing on the things that you can control, the things that are actually in your power and doing your absolute best to let go of the things that are outside of your power. Absolutely. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. 
I'm not sure that I've ever met someone who's a bigger fan of therapy than me. Fun fact, my dad is a psychologist, my mom is a psychologist, my sister is getting her PhD in psychology right now, and wait for it, both of Zach's parents are psychologists. Yeah, it's wild. Anyway, I've grown up with a front row seat to the transformative power of therapy, and I actually really credit therapy for helping me get through some of the darkest periods of my life, including when I was struggling with agoraphobia and daily panic attacks. The only rough part is that it can be so hard to find a good therapist. Sometimes it's because you live in a therapist's desert, and sometimes it's because therapy is definitely on the pricier side, and sometimes it's just because it's wildly inconvenient to commute like 45 minutes to an office for a 50-minute session, after which you have to turn around and commute another 45 minutes home. These are just a few of the many reasons I am so excited to talk to you guys about my sponsor today, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is truly changing the therapy game by democratizing therapy, making therapy accessible, affordable, and available to as many people as possible. Once you log on to betterhelp.com, you'll fill out a brief questionnaire. Then they'll use that to match you with a therapist who is best suited to tackle your specific needs. And they have more than 20,000 to choose from, so you'll definitely be able to find a good match. Then you can schedule secure video and phone sessions, And you get unlimited messages, which is so nice for those quick in-the-moment needs. Plus, if you and your therapist aren't vibing, you can request a new one for no charge at any time. What I love about therapy is it can be a long-term thing or just used for an acute issue. Whether you're going through a stressful period at work or planning a wedding, or you just want ongoing support because life is hard and it's insane to expect that we should be able to go through it alone, BetterHelp can help. There are so many studies about the positive benefits of therapy. I promise once you have your first session, it'll feel like such a sigh of relief. If you'd like to join the over 2 million people using and loving BetterHelp, go to betterhelp.com slash healthier together to get 10% off your first month. Again, that is 10% off your first month at betterhelp, betterhelp.com slash healthier together. Honestly, I just hope this is the tiny bit of incentive that you need to begin prioritizing your mental health. Sometimes we just need a little push like a discount code to take the steps that we know will change our life, but we've been putting off for whatever reason. I love you and I can't wait for you to take this journey. Now, let's get back to the episode. All right. I really want to get back together with my ex who cheated on me and cheated is in quotes virtually. So reached out to multiple women online, but never met up with them in person and claims to have never wanted to either. Everyone who cares about me has told me I deserve more and that I shouldn't be with someone who treated me like that, but I genuinely don't think he would do it again. I'm so fucking torn and it's eating me up every night. I would be so grateful for any advice you have. I have so many thoughts on this one. I think we're (laughs) going to disagree. So I want to know your thoughts. First of all, I don't think there are levels of cheating. I don't think that certain levels of cheating are actually a bigger deal than other levels of cheating. I think all levels of cheating are a big deal. And I think sometimes we're very quick to forgive, I don't know, what this like virtual cheating and we're very quick to forgive like emotional cheating. And I think those are just as bad as having penetrative sex cheating. So it feels worse to me for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe that's just how I interpret things. But I feel like I would be way more upset if my partner had all these strings of emotional cheating than if he like had a drunk kiss or like a drunken mistake hookup or something. That's interesting because I've read like studies where men feel the opposite. So interesting. It kind of shows, doesn't it? Like 
not to be gender normative, but like what is often valued by either gender in the relationship, like between emotional intimacy and physical intimacy. Yeah, I just think it's interesting how there are like immediate perspectives and reactions from, again, different genders just in this base study. Yeah, it's so interesting. So, okay, I don't really think there are levels of cheating. I think it's all cheating. But I also don't think cheating is a deal breaker. And I feel like that's a very unpopular opinion to have. But I have had a number of people who are very close to me in my life who have either been cheated on or who have been the cheater. And it's given me a lot of empathy for the situation on both sides. I think that life is long and being in a long-term partnership is hard. It's so much harder than we give it credit for. And I think that having this rule, this universal rule that like, oh, he cheated on you, it must be over, doesn't work within what reality actually is and the intricacies of a long-term relationship. That said, I don't also think that you need to automatically forgive somebody who cheats. She says in this that she doesn't think that he would do it again. And I really want to know why, because I think sometimes we can be like, oh, they just did it once. It was a one-off. I know they wouldn't do it again. But like, has anything actually changed or is that just wishful thinking? I want to know if there's a plan in place. I want to know if we're talking about a root cause, like is there an unhappiness at work? Is there an unfulfilledness in other parts of life? Is there something we could address in single therapy, in couples therapy? I think that the expectation that things will change without you changing anything within your life is insanity. It's what's the like definition of insanity is like keeping on doing the same thing and expecting it's not. That's actually that saying always bothers me because I'm like, that's actually not the definition of insanity. (laughs) Oh my God. I totally use that quote all the time. I'm like, it's doing the same thing and expecting a different. And I'm like, it's literally not. But (laughs) to that point, I think that people do that a lot with cheating where they're like, they're changed. They expect the person feeling bad about the action the first time to be enough to incentivize a different behavior the next time. And I don't think it is. So I do think if you're getting back with a cheater, having a concrete plan in place for what is going to change is critical. Okay. Disagree with me. Disagree with me. I moderately disagree. (laughs) And I've got a few things to say. So the worst advice I ever received, and it was like one of those like sentences that I parroted for a long, long time in my life that I heard once somebody say, once a cheater, always a cheater. And to me, that really labeled the action and it labeled the person committing the action, which is just like now that I'm older, I really don't think that we should use actions as labels ever. I think it just doesn't allow that person to grow or change. That sentence made me just view cheating as an unforgivable act and like a personality trait and something that somebody could never get past. I've never been cheated on, but that sentence has just always stayed with me. However, I disagree with you, Liz, on the levels of cheating thing. Hear me out. I think there are levels of the action. I don't necessarily think that levels should then translate to how we react to it. If you're bored and on your phone and somebody slid into your DMs and you like flirt with a stranger for five minutes versus you are at a bar, you meet somebody you make that choice decision to go home with that person. You then make the next choice decision to take off your clothing. There are lots of choices in that scenario. So one cheating scenario 
And then going to like emotional cheating, like you make that choice to befriend your coworker, you make that choice to flirt with them for three weeks, you make that choice to continue to call them. I can be on board with that, that it's the amount of times you're choosing your choice that is the gravity of it. Exactly. The more choices or the more like little like sticking points that lead a person to cheating kind of show that they are searching for something else in a relationship that's not really feeding them what they need. So my big question with their question is he reached out to multiple people online. I want to know what he was looking for. Like, was he bored? Was he looking for somebody to chat with? Oh, I'm gendering this. Were they looking for somebody to kind of just meet up with once? Were they just strictly making a mistake? Well, I think that's a conversation that they need to have with each other. I think they need to have the conversation of what is the why behind this? And is that why something that we can make a plan for or address? Or is that why something that is unaddressable? And if it is, then perhaps we should not get back together. Yeah. And that's going to my last thought about this. I don't think of cheating as a deal breaker. However, I do definitively think of it as a fork in the road. Because once it happens, your relationship is never going to be the same again. So you have to choose the path of, okay, this is a completely new path where we're going to have to work through this and we're going to have to go in like a completely new direction. Or you choose the other fork in the road, which is ending the relationship. So I never think it's a deal breaker. However, I do think you're splitting the road that you were on and you have to make a decision. I just did a podcast and I actually don't think it's going to be out when this comes out. So stay tuned for a future episode. But the guest said, choose your heart. And she was like, I didn't come up with this. This is a a known thing. But it was the first time I'd heard it, which is that every choice you're going to make is going to be hard. And we are often looking for like, this is the best choice. This is the easiest choice. When if you frame it as like, they are all hard choices and you get to choose which type of hard you want to have. That was such an unlock for me. So I think staying with your partner, what's it? Oh my gosh, in Love Actually, where she's like, always knowing it's going to be just a little bit different. That's when Emma Thompson's like crying. Have you guys seen that movie? Liz, we need more impressions from you on the pod. That was so good. (laughs) That was Emma Thompson. You guys were really brought there. But she was like, always knowing it's going to be just like, would you go? Would you stay? Always knowing it's going to be just a little bit different. And I think that's the hard of being together. And you're not going to get rid of that hard. But the hard of going is its own hard too. And the power you have in the situation is you get to choose your hard. I want to know why this person wants to stay with their partner. Like I think context is so important in situations like these and also why all of their friends are saying that they don't think they should stay together. I feel two ways. I feel like the only person who can really convince themselves in or out of a relationship is the person in the relationship. And I think there's a lot that we don't see. And there have been times in my life where I did not like a person's relationship from the outside. But then once I got to know them better and time went on, I was like, wow, they're actually really good together. And I didn't see these things because I wasn't inside the relationship in the beginning. But I've also had the same where I've had friends date someone and everyone's like, no, 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 don't do it. And the person didn't listen. And years went by. And of course, it ended and not great. But you were never going to change that. Like nobody saying anything was ever going to change it. Yes. I think that the person has to come to it themselves. And I think that only you can know if you're staying in this relationship for the right reasons. Is it because this person slipped up and wanted something more and they didn't know how to express it? And this was a one-time thing and they're going to grow? Or are you clinging to it because it's convenient and you like them or you 
feel attached to them, like that requires a lot of soul searching. And it's not fun to really think about why you like someone. But I think a lot of the times we are really blinded by our feelings and it's hard to figure that out. I think only you can know, but also like your partner knows and you need to communicate that. You know, you need to push them to figure out why they did it and what was at the root of that. And otherwise, I think we can't know what's happening in other people's heads nearly as much as we think, even with the people that we know the best in the world. And that's why I also think that friends should just stay the fuck out of each other's relationships. Honestly, I think there's such a huge difference between supporting your friend as a person and telling them how they should live their life. And we often err on the side of the ladder. And I think you can support your friend as they are going down a path that you completely disagree with. You can be the most supportive person ever while recognizing that their path and you don't get to choose their life for them. And you also don't know, to Karina's point, you don't know the intricacies of anything that's actually going on in their life. Yeah, there's nothing worse than saying you don't like someone's partner and then they end up getting married or something. And then you're always that person. (laughs) And then you're just going to get cut out. You're going to get cut out of their friendship. I think a lot of people stay in relationships or want to keep going with relationships because they don't want to start over or they like certain aspects of it. They like the company. They feel comfortable. And I think it's really hard to look down deep and figure out why do I want to stay with this person even though they're causing me harm in this area. And I think you just have to do it. Otherwise, you're going to end up making a choice that might not be the right choice for you at that time. And life is long. Life is long. Like we think, oh, I'm this age. I can't start over, blah, blah, blah. But like life is so much longer than we think. And also not to be grim, but we are all going to die someday. And if you're looking back and you're like, I spent 20 years with a partner that wasn't a good fit for me, that's so much worse than I had a little bit of a hard period and had to start over at a time in my life I didn't think I would need to, you know? Yeah. And so many people find love in all stages of life. Like I'm so inspired by stories of people reconnecting with their old love when they're divorced or just like, I don't know. I- Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. Yes, exactly. That's so cute. (laughs) I feel like I'm still processing the fact that they're married now. And she literally changed her name. She's Jennifer Affleck. I'm like, what? And I also, I'm like, kind of like, is this a PR thing a little bit? How in love are they? I think they are. I think they're in love. I Googled their whole relationship timeline (laughs) yesterday and read it aloud to Grant on our drive. And I think they're in love. They had all these quotes talking about like how they always felt like they loved each other. Well, if they have quotes. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it can't be a publicist behind Very that. Real. <laughs> Publicists don't write quotes at all. Never. <laughs> I kind of hope that it started as a PR stunt and some like publicist is That's sitting somewhere. Think. Yeah. I think it started as PR and there's a very real situation where a PR person arranged the initial remeet because maybe they needed some more positive press. Ben Affleck's been having a hard time recently, blah, blah, blah. And then when they got back together, they were like, oh my gosh, what have we been doing? Like, we are the loves of each other's lives. And then now they're happy. Oh. <laughs> That's cute. I <laughs> hope A-Rod I- is <laughs> eating his words. <laughs> but they both got like beautiful children from other relationships too. And I think to the point of everything we're talking about today is our lives go in so many directions and none of them are good or bad. They all just help us grow and expand and change and evolve. And so I don't think like 
Jennifer or Ben would say like, oh, I wish I hadn't married this other partner and I didn't have these amazing children. They went that path for a while and now they're together and that's their path. And those are all beautiful things. Yeah. And I think to that point, just when you're going through a hard time and you're like, how did I end up here? This is such bad luck. Like I didn't expect this in my life. The same can be said on the other side of good things to come. So if you feel like there's a lot of bad unexpected things, there's just as likely as a chance that a good unexpected thing can happen also. And that's exciting. I love that. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. We love talking about our gut health here on the Healthier Together podcast, which is why I'm so excited to share the life-changing Seed Daily Symbiotic. I actually discovered Seed back when I was working as an editor full-time. A bottle came across my desk and I was instantly taken by how cute the green glass packaging is. Then I found out that that packaging was actually refillable so that Seed could share its products as sustainably as possible. And then I actually looked into the research behind Seed and, well, I was blown away. First of all, Seed is not just a probiotic. It is a symbiotic. That means it contains both pre and probiotics, which is super important. In fact, if you remember my Ask the Doctor Gut Health Edition, we talked about how prebiotics are one of the most important and often underlooked components of great gut health. Let me break it down for you. Probiotics are the live bacteria that are so beneficial to our gut health. But prebiotics are the food that those probiotics need to thrive. If you don't have ample prebiotics, the probiotics you're consuming will be undernourished and not be able to help your health in the way that you want. Speaking of your health, there's also a common misconception that probiotics or symbiotics are for people with gut issues, which is so not true. Like, yes, the seed symbiotic is amazing for your gut health, but your gut health impacts everything in your entire body, your skin, your mental health, your cardiovascular health, your ability to actually assimilate the maximum amount of nutrients from all that healthy food you're eating. Having a happy gut is critical for all of it. It is hard to narrow down everything else that I love about seed. I am extremely particular with my supplements and I don't take many, but seed is just stellar across the board. It's been tested and tested and tested. Seriously, their testing process is bananas to make sure that it has 100% survival through the digestive process, which is so rare. And somehow they do all of that without needing refrigeration, which is very handy. I find that when I have refrigerated probiotics, I just forget about them and they get buried behind old jars of pasta sauce, whereas I keep these on my bedside table so I'm reminded to take them every single night. They also contain the 24 strains that are the most scientifically studied to support your whole body's health. I am obviously passionate about this stuff. Taking care of my gut has been a key part of my own anxiety journey, and Seed has been a vital part of that. So feel free to reach out with any questions. And if you like learning about gut health and how probiotics and prebiotics actually function, I highly recommend heading over to seed.com. They have a whole educational section that breaks down the science behind your microbiome in some of the easiest to understand ways that I have ever seen. And if you'd like to try Seed for yourself and pretty much change your life forever, you can get 15% off your first month's supply of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic by going to seed.com slash daily dash symbiotic and using the code Liz Moody. Again, that's code Liz Moody on seed.com slash daily dash S-Y-N-B-I-O-T-I-C. Now let's get back to the episode. What do you think is the most acceptable age gap for dating? Okay, using my frame of reference for The Real Housewives, I personally get a bit of an ick if it's more than 15 years. Oh, you have like a hard number. That's impressive. I like have been told by a lot of people, like, 
I will talk hard numbers all the time and people will always be like, I've never had somebody just give me a straight number. And I'm like, maybe I'm too firmly. <laughs> is it left brain or is it right brain that? I think the whole brain thing's been disproven. We literally talked about that in the last episode, but you may be a little rigid. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Fine. This is all fake and you're rigid. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that about you. Sure, sure. I'll take it. So in my rigid uptight brain, 15 <laughs> years feels fine. But again, to each their own, you're never in the relationship. So I've never like hardcore been like, oh, this age number is too big. However, on Real Housewives, this woman got married at 20 to a guy who was 40. This is Crystal on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. If anybody's following, the season is phenomenal soft plug for Bravo if they want to sponsor the podcast. <laughs> Anyways, and their relationship seems super functional, super lovely. They have kids. She's 20 and they have kids? Well, I mean, she's 40 now. They were oh. she was 20 when they got married and he was 40 or 41. She married the director of The Lion King for fun facts. <laughs> the animated one? Yes. Oh wow, that's cool. They got some real real housewives. Oh, Beverly Hills has the most like legit celeb adjacent Real Housewives. I feel like reality TV stars have firmly become real celebrities. And so now it's like not an embarrassing thing to be on a reality TV show. And everybody just sees it as an opportunity to build their brand, grow their business, whatever. And so they can get such a different caliber of people. Oh, yeah. I would gladly do a reality TV show with you too. And I think we have high caliber talent for that. Oh, I agree completely. The downside is I would have to move to California and I just, I can't right now. Oh, no. Our group chat what is called downside. the California Lobby because we are constantly trying to convince Justine to move to California. I appreciate the West Coast for what it is. It's just too sunny for me. <laughs> That's such a lie. It literally is. You would absolutely love it. But okay, so you believe 15 years, but with some caveats. Okay, my final answer with my purview of Real Housewives is that we're not inside the relationship. I personally, personally get a little bit of an ick at the 15-year mark. But as you get older, that age gap grows in terms of like what's reasonable. Well, that's what I think. So I don't have an age number, but I have a phase of life number. I think it's really hard for people in different phases of life to date. So I think it's really hard for a high school person to date a college person, also potentially illegal. I think it's really hard for a college person to date somebody who is graduating and entering the workforce. But then I actually think once you enter the workforce, everybody's kind of in a similar phase of life. There's a different one that happens, I'd say, in your late 20s and in your 30s and maybe into your 40s where people are settling down, they're having babies, they're doing all of that sort of more grown up stuff. And you need to be aligned on the phase of life you are in with your partner in that. Like I think if you're a 20 something who just wants to go out and party and drink every night and you're dating a 35 year old who really wants to be in watching Netflix and have a kid and all of that, like you need to work that out. But by and large, I don't care about numbers. I just care that you're in an aligned phase of life. That's the better answer. I'll take that one as well. <laughs> I like 15 years. I like that you give your hard numbers. I think that's cool. The only thing that really icks me out is like when someone's like 18, 19 and they're dating someone much older. And I think the older I get, the younger I feel like those ages are. I don't know. Like if you just look at an 18 year old, they look so young. 
I will say I was that like 18, 19, 20 year old and I would date guys like in their late 20s and 30s. And I was so sure that I was just so mature and that they like saw this wise old soul in me. And I can say as the person who thought they were that, that you are not that, they are taking advantage of you or they're emotionally deficient in some way. (laughs) And like you should just run for the hills about that. Like I do agree that that very young age, if there's an older it can be either way, but likely an older guy. It's not because you're this beautiful, mature, wise old soul. I promise you. Yeah. And it's not their fault. I think the way I think of it now is if I had a friend, I'm 31. If I had a friend who was dating an 18 year old, I would be really concerned. And I think it does go to the stage of life thing, really. And I think one of the coolest things about getting older is realizing how much you don't know and how much you're learning. And it's really great to have that discovery. But it would be a red flag if one of my friends was doing that. Isn't that the best when you actually sit down for a second and reflect on how much you've grown and learned and evolved? Yeah, it excites me. I'm like, what else am I going to learn next year, 10 years? Like, it's cool. That's why I love doing my birthday post so much because I feel like I do this post on Instagram for my birthday every year that's like X things I learned in X years. And I feel like it makes me reflect. It just like stop for a second because life goes so fast and we don't give ourselves credit for the progress that we've made. And I think intentionally having a little bit of time where you can be like, oh my gosh, I have grown up in this really wonderful way. Go me. And it's also so self-assuring. Like I remember hearing this once that people often overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they can do in five years. And I feel like when you really sit back and are looking at where you were five years ago, like the humongous difference just feels like so assuring that like all these tiny choices that you're making are adding up to like these big life changes and that you're slowly building something. It just feels really cool. I I love that. love that. That's such a good quote or sentiment. That should give us hope instead of sticking to New Year's resolutions. You can be like one year isn't always enough. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Last one. I was wondering if you could speak to how you balance routine with listening to your body. When incorporating new habits like working out or eating well, I tend to see it as a goal and I feel bad when I don't achieve it. Was curious if this is something you or others also experience and how you navigate it. Are you going to make fun of my gym routine again? I only do that like once a month or so. Okay, well, it's been a week, so maybe I'll get a free pass (laughs) to give the listeners context. I have definitely struggled routine and listening to my body in the way, way past, like definitely had some issues with viewing exercises like a have to do, not a want to do, and not really like being intuitive in that respect. And I feel like it's honestly come with age. I started with a really rigid workout routine and now Liz makes fun of me because I go to the gym and I have a very loose schedule. I do a workout lifting split that doesn't really change, but the actual lifting that I do is based off of how energized I it's feel. It's a vibe. No, I like to picture Justine like over the weights, like holding her hand above them and sensing the energy and being like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to do curls, you know? <laughs> that was literally me at the gym this morning. I was like, hamstring curls just feel right. But what's funny is I coined this back when the word intuitive was like trending. I coined this as like intuitive training, but really now I've just coined it as like, flexible training because I now have worked out enough and like know the gym enough 
that I can feel what muscles are like, oh, that needs like to be worked a little more today or like, ooh, this feels like I'm a little fatigued with my triceps. So maybe I'll go easier on this. This is a very granular answer, but my advice would be start with a routine that you pick up from somebody else, whether that be working out or like eating habits or whatever. Start with that and build a framework and then get more and more comfortable over time riffing on that framework with how you're feeling. And and my best advice is that it takes a lot of practice and you also have to simultaneously incorporate it with you just want to feel your best and that should not be tied to like doing it to change how you look or to reach a running a half marathon goal. It's really just tied to an immediate good feeling, if that makes sense. I have a few. I have a question and a comment. So I'd say the question first, how does that fit with like, would you never work out if you never woke up on any day feeling like you wanted to work out? Or would you never eat a vegetable if you never woke up any day feeling like you wanted to eat a vegetable? See, this is why I say start with a routine that you admire and that you think speaks to you because to get like really granular, I started working out like period in 2016. It was a New Year's resolution that never stopped. Good for you. Like, let's take a second and be like, wow, you stuck to a New Year's resolution for five years or what year is that? So that's six years. Six years. That's wild. Good for you. Thank you. And before that New Year's resolution stuck, I definitely treated working out as like a punishment and I would get super into it for like three weeks. And then I just like wouldn't work out for like two months. And I was also in college and that was a wild time of wrestling with my body and with an eating disorder, like a bunch of layers to that. But in 2016, I was like, okay, I definitely know that like I enjoy strength training. I enjoy going to a structured gym. So I found a schedule that I liked and I would tell myself five days a week, all I need to do, this was part of the New Year's resolution, was like get to the gym, like pay it a visit, walk in, see how I feel when I'm there. I had like a printed out website routine and I used that for about six months And there were definitely days where it just didn't fit in my schedule to get to the gym or I truly felt fatigued. And those days I would take, but most of the time I was like, I'm building this new habit. I'm building this new thing I want to implement. And it really was important to me because I wanted to live a long and happy life. And after about six months, I started to get addicted to the routine, addicted to the endorphins in a good way. I still think it's a healthy addiction. And then it was first building a strong foundation of wanting to do it, even though it felt like I had to force myself to do it, at least at the very beginning, it definitely felt like a forced thing. But once you build the routine foundation, then I think that's where you start practicing listening and intuition. And I think a big issue I have with intuitive eating and like, as I said, intuitive training and just the intuition movement is people are like, just dive in, it'll happen right away. And I'm like, I. I think it's very healthy if you're that kind of person to want to build in like a routine that you normally wouldn't be like intuitively drawn to and then start to slowly, slowly, slowly incorporate listening to yourself and listening to your body's wants and desires. I love that. I think to a few of your points, one, I think the paying attention to how you feel after doing something is so, so important and noticing how good it feels, particularly like to marinate in the good feelings. There's 
the neuroscience concept that what fires together wires together. And when we reinforce positive feelings, it makes it more easy for us to have those positive feelings in the future. So when you go to the gym and you feel that really like energized, amazing, tired, but in the best way, feel those feelings in your body afterwards, really marinating in those feelings so that your neurons literally fire together and wire together. And you remember that, which helps reinforce the habit. Same with healthy eating, same with community connection, same with flossing, like same with any new healthy habit that you're trying to incorporate. But then also to your point, giving it a little bit of time because things don't happen immediately. And you're going to like the gym so much more, the stronger that you get. I like, I hated hiking when I first started hiking because I just felt like I was dying the entire time. And now that I'm in good enough shape that I can make my way up the mountain, you know, a little slower than maybe Zach would like, but I can do it. I enjoy hiking so much more. Same with eating well, your taste buds literally change. Your mouth microbiome literally changes over time. The more vegetables you consume, literally the more vegetables you will crave. That is science. So I think it's this combination of starting in the moment, but then also giving it enough time to have those changes that are going to create those positive reinforcements so that you can feel the benefits and want to continue to do them. And then also being open to the fact that if you're not feeling positive benefits, if you've been doing something for months and months and months and you don't feel better and you're still dreading it every time, maybe then it's time to try a different routine or adjust in a different direction. Yes, absolutely. And one more thing to piggyback off of that. I do think when building new habits, a lot of people go too hard too fast to the point where it's not enjoyable at all. The all or nothing mentality here will also not super serve you. The reason my routine stuck is because it was very easy. I was not killing myself. It was not like high intensity interval training every day. It was just incredibly manageable and like implementing small and incredibly manageable things and then really marinating in, if that's the right word for that, in the reward and the good feelings afterwards, making the action itself not horrible and then making the reward all that much better and then connecting those neurons. And can we just touch on this last bit, which is feeling bad when you're not hitting your own goals? Do either of you have any thoughts on that? Spicy thought. Sometimes closing all the rings on your Apple Watch is not what you need. I feel like goals are great to have and we do get little hits of dopamine for achieving goals. But I think it's even more damaging when you don't hit that goal and then you're beating yourself up for it. It's all about small goals, attainable goals, like hyper, hyper attainable goals. And then realizing that some things, like if it's just incorporating habits, don't always have to be extremely goal-oriented. Yeah, I was just going to say that I feel like I don't set wellness goals for myself that much anymore because I feel like when you set too concrete of a goal, one, it can become too rigid and two, yeah, you can be left feeling really disappointed. I think it's more about adding things in or switching things up and not saying like, I need to walk 10,000 steps today. Maybe just like, I need to walk today or I need to move whatever that looks like most days. I think it's really tricky to have really, really distinct concrete goals when it comes to wellness because most of the time you might not even get there. And I think one way to look at it that makes me feel better is like if I have a really busy day and I don't like work out or eat that well, but then I saw my friends in the evening and I did a lot of reading or whatever it is, like I think about, oh, yeah, maybe I didn't 
work out today, but I had so much fun with my friends. Like that was fulfilling another part of my wellness. I try to think about why I didn't do something. And it's usually not just because I sat on the ground the entire day. I I love that. Like it doesn't exist in a vacuum that you didn't work out, like reflecting on the likely positive way that you filled that time otherwise. Yeah. And even if you were sitting on the couch, maybe you were tired and needed to rest and that's okay. Like that's also fulfilling and you were doing something else with your time. You weren't just staring off into space for 12 hours. (laughs) And if you were, maybe you needed that. Yeah. Maybe you needed to just tune it all out. Like a blank space reset. I do think the more you can practice trying to give your body what you need, the more you can trust that you are giving your body what you need and the more you can forgive and understand and appreciate all of the choices that you make in all directions. Yeah, absolutely. And all of this is, like you said earlier, the muscle that you flex and it gets stronger. So like learning that and learning to know yourself is like training a muscle. And we believe in you. We think you can do it. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Can you guys tell people where they can find you online if they want more of your beautiful voices and wisdom? Literally every platform, I am Justine underscore snacks. And you can also find me at JustineSnacks.com. And when I say almost every platform, I mean it, except for Twitch, maybe. (laughs) And OnlyFans. You'd be surprised. It's called Snacks. (laughs) Snacks would, I feel like, do really well as an OnlyFans. It's called Snacks as Racks. And it's just racks of my clothing. Just my entire closet. You really wound me up and then you let me down. I (laughs) have two subscribers and they're very happy with what they get. (laughs) But yes, that's where you can find me. And what kind of content do you do on those pages other than clothing racks? I do lots of recipes on Instagram. I post a new recipe every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And on TikTok, it's a lot more experimental, a lot more fun. Farmer's Market hauls, mostly food, and a lot of my voice if you want to hear me talk and talk and talk. About any number of topics you just dive on. And I feel like you're doing like personal therapy sessions, but the most eloquently written personal therapy sessions in your VOs. Oh, thank you. Sometimes they're funny. They ebb and flow. They ebb and flow. My therapy sessions are funny. (laughs) Actually, I bet. I'm a Leo, so I'm always trying to like impress my therapist too, you know? (laughs) Have you worked through that in therapy? Actually, my very first session, I said like, I'm going to try to like razzle dazzle you and you need to be on the lookout for that. (laughs) And she's like, got it, got it, got it. Cool. (laughs) All right, Karina, where can people find you online? On Instagram, you can find me at Kale Me Maybe. And I have a lot of inconsistencies across my platforms, but I'm working on that. I'm Karina.Wolf with two Fs on TikTok. And I also have a newsletter, goodmoodfood.news. But you can just click the link in either of my bios to get there because I know that's a lot of information. But I'm generally Kale Me Maybe. And what can we find in your amazing newsletter? You can find recipes. You can find me talking all about my life and my random thoughts that I have about the world and myself, some links. I have my writing and I have helpful articles that relate to cooking, planning your meals for the week, how to eat for your mood. I love the connection between food and psychology. So I touch on that a lot in my newsletter. I love that. Well, 
Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I love this conversation. If anybody listening would like to have their question answered on any future advice podcast episodes, just send it to ask at lizmoody.com or you can also DM me on Instagram, although my DMs are absolutely wild. So there is a fair chance that I will miss it there. So I would recommend sending it to ask at lizmoody.com. We will be back on the last Monday of every single month. So tune in for that. But we have normal episodes of the Healthier Together podcast where I interview experts, doctors, amazing people about everything from charisma to gut health to hormone health to longevity to gut money, like basically everything and anything to do with wellness. You can find that every single Wednesday, wherever you get your podcast. And I so appreciate you listening. I love doing these episodes. I think they are so much fun. I love listening to that really chatty fun conversational episode. So it's so fun for me to be able to share that with everybody out there listening. And I love you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And I will see you on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. There is so much incredible science behind red light therapy. There's research going all the way back to 1903 that won a Danish physician a Nobel Prize for showing that exposure to concentrated red light accelerated physical healing. And research from NASA has shown that it boosts the production of growth factor proteins and collagen, among many other incredible things. I am obsessed with red light therapy. It is so science-supported, and I've personally seen huge, huge benefits. I use Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device, which is a red light panel, so I'm not limiting its benefits to my face. I feel like the masks are so popular right now, but I would like to expose my entire body to the red light. That way, it helps with not only my skin, my collagen production, but also increasing energy, decreasing pain, repairing cellular damage, improving mental health and cognitive function, and so much more. You are not spending that much more money to get a panel versus a mask, but you get a much more versatile device with way more powerful effects. Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device gives you professional-grade equipment straight at your home for the best price that I have seen anywhere. You can stand your Max panel on the floor on any flat surface, or you can hang it on the back of a door. It is really lightweight, and it is so easily stored away in the closet when you are done using it for the day. You only need 10 to 20 minutes, so Zach and I actually meditate in front of it naked, uh, but there's lots of ways that you can have it stack it into your routine, so you do whatever sounds good to you. Check out Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device now on bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. Bond Charge products are all HSA, FSA eligible, giving you tax-free savings of up to 40%. And for a limited time on top of that, my listeners will get 15% off when you order from bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. That is B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. You will also get free shipping and a 12-month warranty. Go now to get this exclusive offer that is bondcharge.com with promo code LizMoody to get 15% off.